0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, and we want everybody to be able to follow along so the guys have some Bibles, get their attention as they make their way back, and they'll get a Bible to you so you can look at Genesis 3 with us together in God's Word. Philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said about the philosophy in which he was trained, The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Now, that statement has been modified over the years to, after Plato, everything else is footnotes. And the idea is that in the teachings of that famous Greek philosopher, he has at least touched on all the important questions of philosophy so that everything else that follows is commentary on what Plato already said. Now, I think a similar thing is true of the Bible and in an even more important way. You see, at the very beginning of the Bible, in its first few chapters, the Bible lays out the issues that will be commented on in all the pages that follow in Scripture and in all of the years that follow in history. In the first three chapters of Genesis, you have three major themes introduced. And under those three major themes, everything else in the Bible and therefore in life can be subsumed. You have creation, you have the fall, and you have redemption in those first three chapters. In the creation of man in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God tells us who he is and who we are and what we are to do in relation to him. In Genesis chapter 3, as we've seen in the last few weeks, humanity fails in his purpose to worship God in all that he does, and so sin enters humanity and his habitat, the earth. We will see beginning next week, still in chapter 3, that God immediately undertakes to restore what has fallen by the entrance of sin. So that in these first three chapters, you have all three themes of creation and fall and redemption, and after that, everything else Is really footnotes. If you understand those three themes. Then you have a grid through which to see everything. A lens with which you see God. And yourself and others and your circumstances. To put it another way. If you understand creation, fall and redemption. You have a biblical worldview. You have an accurate way of viewing the world. Of viewing everything. After Genesis 3, everything else is truly footnotes. So it's important for us to tease out as much application from these events recorded in Genesis 1 through 3 as we possibly can. Now, I call your attention to the outline that's inserted in your program. We have one in there for you every week. And you see there that the three major points in the outline all begin with, We all experience. And I worded it that way because I'm trying to show the impact of the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world, the impact it has on us and for us to see the practical application of the reality of sin in our lives. And so that's why I've worded it. We all experience as a result of what happens in Genesis chapter three. Now, we began to look last week at those issues and we got through the first of the three. Sort of. You see in the outline, those blanks were filled in last week, and that portion is in gray rather than black ink to signify that it was already covered last week. But I said last week that I'd elaborate a bit more on even what we did cover. Now, if you were not here last Sunday, or you were here but you weren't listening, then you can listen to last week's message as each week on our website. Let's ask God to help us. As we look at the effect of sin on us and our world. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather in your presence as your people. We thank you for the great privilege of having your word given to us to have in our hands for us to read and to know who you are, and who we are and what our problem is and what your remedy is for it. Thank you for these mercies, and we thank you in advance for your grace extended to us in this hour now to focus our attention on these important issues and open our hearts to be changed into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Last week, I mentioned that in the entrance of sin into God's word, into what we call the fall, we call it the fall, not because it was an accident. It was a very deliberate act. On the part of the first man and the first woman. But I pointed out that that first man was our representative. And God chose him to be our perfect representative. So that, as I said last week, Adam did what we would have done. So don't ever think that we somehow got ripped off because this guy did something we would have never done. Adam did precisely what we would have done because Adam was our perfect representative. And as a result then of, you can think of it this way, of us doing what we read in Genesis chapter 3, deliberately disobeying God, and so sin comes into God's world, and there are a number of effects effects, and one of those effects is upon us personally and our progeny. Those who are now born into the world, every last person comes into the world now with a nature that is sinful. And that's why I can say in the outline, we all experience these things. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And I say in the outline, because of sin, we experience a number of things. First is division. And you can barely read that. We probably should have made that a little darker. I should have made that a little darker. But I want to go over some more of that, even though we covered some of it last week. We all experience division. That is, we all experience separation. And we... Experience separation, first of all, and most importantly, from God. Sin divides us from God. So verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife, after having sinned, then they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I pointed out to you last week that it doesn't necessarily mean that God was physically walking in the garden. It's possible that God had taken on a pre-incarnate before God became man 2,000 years ago. Rather, millennia before that, that God would have taken on a pre-incarnate form to communicate with man. It's possible that they heard his footsteps. But it's more likely in my mind that they actually heard his voice. In fact, the word that's translated sound is, is his voice. And... The Hebrew is actually his voice going throughout the garden. When it says walking, it's going his voice going in the garden. So they they heard God in in some form. But notice it says in verse eight, they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And I said last week that phrase they hid from the Lord is one of the saddest phrases in all of the word of God. Because Because it signifies a seismic shift now. In the relationship between the Creator and His creatures. God made man, God made humanity for fellowship with Him. Apparently, Adam and Eve knew that fellowship, knew the sound of the voice of the Lord, because it was, some commentators say, a daily occurrence that God would come and commune with them. They were made for that purpose, and now here they are, hiding from their God. And ever since that time, men and women have been affected by sin, and we hide from God. People hide from God. And the effects of this division, the separation from God are numerous. One of those is this, that people do not come into this world now naturally with the sense of purpose that God gave to our first parents. People are not born into this world with an understanding of my purpose here is to bring glory to God and to worship him. People have to then be taught that. In fact, they have to be moved to that from the purposes that they make up for themselves and that they pursue whimsically and that they pursue throughout their lives, going often from one thing to another. For many people, their lives are much like teenagers at a shopping mall. Now, you know what I mean by that? Teenagers at a shopping mall is synonymous with aimless. If you ever have the misfortune of going to a shopping mall, which I try to avoid as much as I can, but the times I have had to go there, I see packs, I like to call them packs of teenagers, and they are roaming through the shopping mall, but nobody's actually shopping. They're actually, just like, going from place to place, and they all have this look like, well, what are we going to do next? Or sometimes on a Friday night or on a Saturday night, you'll see young people doing that in their cars. They're just kind of roaming around, they know that somebody's having a party over here. And they told that somebody, maybe I'll stop by. Maybe I'll stop by. But there's no particular agenda. We're all just kind of aimlessly wandering around. And as a result of the entrance of sin and separation from the God who made us for His purpose to worship and glorify Him, now everyone comes into this world purposeless and aimless. Another effect is this. That what should be natural now requires that we receive a new nature. What should be natural, what was made to be natural for us, now requires that we be given a new nature. Here's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, You must be born again. The reason that every person must be born again, regenerated, given new life. The reason that is true is because everyone comes into this world, the Bible teaches, spiritually dead. That is spiritually separated from God. Purposeless and separated from God. And therefore, what should have been natural and what was made to be natural for us now has to be imparted with a new nature. We have to be told, here's another implication of our separation from God. We now have to be told what to do In even what should have come naturally. We have to be told to do what originally would have come naturally. Much of what's in your Bible is us being instructed to do what would have come naturally had sin not entered God's world. I mean, think about just this one thing. If sin had not entered God's world, then humanity would have automatically and regularly been thankful to God every moment of every day. And yet Romans chapter one tells us that one of the one of the evidences of sin in humanity is that they cease to be thankful to God. And so the Bible has to tell us things like first Thessalonians chapter five, give thanks in all circumstances. In every circumstance, we now have to be reminded that God is on the throne and in all of those circumstances, adverse though they may be, we can and should and must thank God in those circumstances. But the word of God goes even further. We don't thank God just in the circumstances. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, always give thanks to God the Father. Now notice this, for everything. (laughs) It's one thing to be in the situation. And to say, I'm still going to to thank the Lord. It's another thing to breathe out thanks to the Lord for this situation. Especially when it's a difficult situation. And there are all of these effects then that we experience because we are divided from God. Our purpose is gone. What should be natural now requires a new nature be given to us. We have to be told what would have come naturally. And here's another. Because we are separated from God, our daily routine, the humdrum of life is separated from God. Is separated from the involvement with God, with communion with God. Talking about and to God, then, is not a natural thing that people do. Talking to and about God does not come naturally. In fact, it is now so unnatural because of sin, we have to call we feel like we have to call attention to it because it's out of the norm. You know, have you ever gone to well some of you are racing fans, bless your hearts. And I'm told that the NASCAR set that they pray before each race, that there's a prayer offered before each NASCAR race. So you have this prayer and you have this invocation and we kind of all cheer God on. Yeah, we've invoked some God here. Now let's get on with the race. But the larger point here is that what should become natural at all times and in every event now has to have a tension call to it. One of the really cool things about NASCAR, I'm told by racing fans, is we pray before we race. Now that's better than not praying before you race. But that should be something that comes naturally to us. And let me give you one further implication. Just giving you an idea of how you need to think in your minds of all of the implications and applications of the division that sin has brought to us from our God. Do you know that if sin had not entered the world and we were not separated from God as sinners from birth, there would be no such thing as separation of church and state. I mean, think about a world where everything and all things were in harmony with the God who made them and who gave them. And government functioned for God and for his purposes. That's precisely what God made man to do. And everything that man creates and every structure that man builds was to be done for that purpose. But now because of the entrance of sin, we have to be careful about what we say in particular places, in particular times. Friends, sin divides us from God. And we say in your outline as well, sin divides us from ourselves. Sin divides us from ourselves. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I pointed out last week that God called to the man, notice, because the man had been given responsibility. It was the woman who led the dialogue earlier in chapter 3 with the serpent, but it is the man to whom the Lord calls. He says, where are you? And the man answered, verse 10, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now the question from God was, where are you? But the answer that Adam gives is, I was afraid, and I was naked, and so I hid. So his answer is not really to the question. God says, where are you? Adam's answer directly should have been over here, left, third bush to the left. But he doesn't say that. He answers the question that's actually implied. And the implied question is from God, Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam knows that that's the question. And part of the answer to that question is true. Adam says, I was afraid. That's true. He was afraid and he had reason to be afraid. But the reason for his being afraid is not true. He says it's because I was naked. Well, I was afraid, and here's why I was afraid. It's because I was naked, and so I hid, and he lies to God. How do I know he lies to God? Because he was naked before the sin. And he had no fear of God's presence at that point. And even after the man and the woman partook of the tree... He was not, in fact, physically naked when God comes and calls on him because they made fig leaves for themselves, verse number 7 tells us. One commentator has said, So the fear was because Adam knew that he was in sin. His guilt had been uncovered, and they, the man and the woman, stood in naked shame before God. Now, friends, that has ongoing effects. People hide from God. And people make excuses internally within themselves about their relationship with God. It divides us from ourselves. As a result of sin now, we all think and deliberate and psychologically are divided as we think about other people and what those other people might, might do to us, because we know our own sin and we know that they are sinners and we try to anticipate what they might do and sort of gameplay play the next steps. And that's why the book of Proverbs says this: The wicked flee when no man pursues. The wicked are looking over their shoulders. Sinners are looking over their shoulder and they're thinking to themselves, what's going to happen next? Why are they looking at me that way? Why are they doing that? What have they got in mind? And here are some other implications of the fact that sin divides us internally from ourselves. We are not, as a result of sin, none of us, whole, complete in our thinking, in our choosing, and in our feeling. Our thinking, our choosing, and our feeling. Now, if you were with us several weeks ago, when we looked at chapter one in the creation of the first man and woman at the end, toward the end of chapter one and man being made in God's image, I pointed out then that part of that image of God in man is a personal resemblance to God. That is that humanity alone among all of God's creation has the components of personhood, mind, will and emotion, mind, will and emotion. And all of those when we were originally created were all in harmony. What we think, we thought correctly. And that in turn led to behaving correctly and feeling correctly. But now because of sin, our bodies are out of whack. Our spirits are are sinful. And so our thinking and our volition, our choosing and our feeling are not in harmony. harmony. To put it another way, we don't have integrity. The word integrity means whole. And people don't have integrity. Of their thinking and their choosing and their feeling. Another implication is that we can't be honest with ourselves. We can't be honest with ourselves about ourselves because we are ashamed before God. I can't come clean about myself. I have trouble confessing the Bible's word. Say the same thing about your sin and behavior that God says about it. But we have trouble doing that. And so, in my internal deliberations about myself, I'm saying to myself, I'm not that bad. It's because this happened or that happened. We can't be honest with ourselves. And then here's another implication there's a lack of transparency in our relationships with one another, which brings me to that next point. Sin divides us from God, sin divides us from ourselves, and sin divides us from others. You see that in verse 11. And God said, verse 11, Who told you, Adam, that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I pointed out last week, the first words that come out of Adam's mouth to God in verse 12 are, The woman. The woman and you. Immediately, Adam does what I just mentioned under the prior point. He begins to think about why it's not his fault. And one of the reasons it's not his fault is because the woman did it. And it may not even be completely her fault because you're the one who made her. Maybe it's all your fault, God. That's how creative sinful beings can be in excusing our sin. In a book that I purchased many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, with the title, The Trauma of Transparency. It was a book that was very helpful to me. And of course, all helpful books are out of print. The trauma of transparency. In that book, the author Grant Howard pointed out that since the fall, since Genesis 3, humanity in its interpersonal relationships with one another is characterized by a couple of things. Hiding from one another and hurling at one another. Hiding and hurling. Hiding and I will talk about in a moment, and hurling, that is hurling accusations at one another. And so now, as a result of sin, we are divided from others. We now talk about one another rather than to one another. And that comes from this hiding tendency of all sinners. Many terms are used to depict this tendency that we all have to hide from one another. We cover up our needs. We bury our thoughts. We repress our feelings. We mull things over inwardly. We're quiet, reserved, or even withdrawn. We're introverted, sullen, pouting, shy, bashful. We say, I couldn't care less, but we really do. Actually, all too often we say, I could care less. And you're saying it wrong when you say it that way. That's just a grammar lesson. I couldn't care less. That's the way you're supposed to say it. I feel better now. Let's move on. (laughs) We say, I couldn't care less, but we really do. We say, leave me alone because we don't want anyone to step inside and see what's really happening. We say, I don't want to talk about it, even though we desperately need to talk about it. We say, nothing's bothering me when, in all honesty, a problem is clawing our souls to shreds. We say, I can work this out by myself when, in reality, we can't. We need help. And we may pride ourselves on our ability to be open and honest in our relationships and in certain situations and at certain times we are, but basically we are sinners and sinners tend to hide. And we tend to hide, friends, not simply because we're fearful and bashful or inarticulate and confused. Some of you are sitting here right now, and as I went through that litany, you're thinking, well, yeah, that's me. You know, I'm just sort of shy and I'm just sort of bashful. Well, that may be your personality, but the Bible is teaching that there's more to it than that. It's not just I'm fearful, bashful, inarticulate and confused. Ultimately, because we are sinners, sin separates. Sin alienates. Sin causes people to hide from one another. For some of you, you will have a test case on that in just a little bit. Within the next half hour, we will dismiss, and all God's people said. And we will have our refreshment time, our fellowship time. And I want all of you to think about what you do during that fellowship time. Do you interact with people or do you hide from people? Some of you are professional hiders that hiding is not is not just your personality and you need to see it as an area of spiritual growth for you to begin to be be a blessing and receive blessing from others that God has placed in your path. And so hiding started here, as I pointed out last week, blame shifting started here as well. Those first words out of the man's mouth are the woman and you, God, and then verse 13, The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. So the blame shifting from Adam toward the woman and God, and now the blame shifting from the woman toward the serpent. You have the hiding that happens because of sin, but you also have the hurling, the accusations. We hurl in a variety of ways. We act as judge and jury and we condemn others. We project our problems on those who live with us. We ridicule, we dominate, we're dogmatic, sarcastic, obnoxious, overbearing. We pronounce the final word when we have no reason nor right to. We cut a person down neatly with a word of criticism. Hurling becomes for, for sinful people their natural way of relating improperly and inadequately to God. We hurl by the way we think and feel and act, by what we say and do not say, by what we do or do not do. And we all do it. This is not to say that other people don't have problems, nor is it to say that we're always wrong when we blame others. It's simply to say our tendency is to get it off our back and to hurl it, shift it towards someone else. And now in this scenario in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, God pronounces sentences. Upon the participants in the sad drama of the entrance of sin into God's world. He pronounces sentences for their sin. And he does so in the same order that the serpent and the woman and the man participated in it. Beginning in verse 14, God pronounced a sentence, pronounces consequences. Judgment on the serpent. Have you ever thought about why God starts with the serpent? Because this whole thing started with the serpent. And then God goes to the woman, because the serpent spoke to the woman. And then finally God speaks and pronounces sentence upon the man. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now implied in this, that prior to this sentence by God, this serpent, as I pointed out last week, two weeks ago, stood stood erect and now is going to crawl on, on his belly. And I want you to notice that God says in verse 14, you are cursed above these two categories of animals, livestock and all the wild animals. And I remind you that back in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, you had three categories of animals That were listed there, livestock, wild animals, and then you had creeping, you had creeping things as well. And these land animals or living creatures were divided into these three basic sorts. And these three basic sorts include all the animals of the earth. They are the livestock that is living creatures that man can domesticate or tame. The creatures that move along the ground, that is small creatures that creep along the ground. And then you have the wild animals. These are creatures that cannot be domesticated. And the serpent is in the wild animal category. How do I know that? Look back at verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty, more subtle, than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. This was one of the untamed category. So in now... Verse 14 of chapter 3, two of the three categories are mentioned. The livestock and the wild animals. And the serpent, prior to this sin, prior to this sentence, was in the wild animal category. And now he's going to go into this third category of those who crawl along the ground. Two of the three categories are mentioned. And the serpent is moved from one of those to another. The creatures that move along the ground. Now, there's nothing inherently demeaning about that means of getting around, mobility, but to go from untamed to now having to avoid being stepped on and chasing vermin for food, (laughs) well, that's quite a comeuppance, isn't it? Or the other direction, as the case is. And as a result of that now, the one who was behind the animal, the serpent, Satan, the devil, He is our adversary, our enemy, the accuser, and the one against whom we must now be on our guard and against whom we battle. And that's why your New Testament says this, Put on the full armor of God, so that you may take your stand against the serpent's, the devil's schemes. Now, why was this animal cursed? I mean, it was the devil who was behind it. So why is the animal cursed? You know, in Genesis chapter nine, Genesis chapter nine, the Bible pronounces capital punishment. God pronounces capital punishment upon an animal who kills a human. If an animal kills a human, that animal is to be killed. God says, "Why is that?" I mean, animals don't have moral culpability; they're not made in the image of God. And why is this sentence pronounced? Here's why. Because the animals were made for the use of man. And when animals fail to fulfill their purpose for the use of humanity, then judgment is given to those animals. Now, in verse number 16, God pronounces his sentence upon the woman. He says you will have pain in childbearing. In verse 16, God says that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. A few weeks ago, I dealt with what that is. And so I'm not going to spend time on that now. And the reason that I'm skipping verse 15 is because we're going to deal with that as redemption next week. So sin divides us from God and from ourselves and from others. And then sin divides us from our world. Now, when I say sin divides us from our world, I really mean from from the rest of creation, from our environment. In verse 17, to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. It the ground will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust. You are and to dust. You will return. One of the implications of this, let me tease this out a bit, is that contrary to what some of us have thought, and I've heard people say over the years, work, the fact that we have to work for a living, is not the curse of God. I've heard people say that work is the curse, and that's why i got to get up every day, and i got to do the 9 to 5, or the 9 to 10, or whatever it is, routine. The work world is part of the curse. It's not that. In fact, you remember back in chapter 2 and verse 15, God had given work to do to the man and the woman in the garden paradise that he had made. They were still going to work. The curse is not the work. The curse is the difficulty of the work. It will now be through painful toil because the ground now is cursed and it is going to produce thorns and thistles and your work is going to be made all the more difficult. The environment, the creation itself, suffers the effects of fallenness. We see that in our New Testament. The Bible says the creation was subjected to decay. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Because there is this curse upon the environment, animals, the animal world, animal creatures are now estranged from humanity. They were made to be in harmony with, harmony with humans. And now they have to be domesticated and made to be and trained to be in harmony with us, right? Those of you who have an animal, and you have to train it. And if you invite me over to your house and you have an animal, please train it. But we have to do that even though naturally they were made to be in harmony with humanity. But now they are estranged. And so when God said to the serpent, one of the animal kingdom, God says, cursed are you above all of the livestock and above all of the wild animals. The implication is this, that the others are cursed in some way too. So now a change has occurred in the animal world. One of those changes as a result of the fall was that animals went from a vegetarian diet to a meat diet and that meant you could be their dinner. And that meant that their dinner would come from one another. That didn't happen prior to the fall. Man had a vegetarian diet, as did animals originally. And we know that humans did not become carnivorous, that is, meat-eaters, until after the flood of Noah's day. Genesis 9 says this, everything God says to Noah, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Prior to that, man had herbivorous diet. Vegetarian. And now, right after the fall, though, the animals become carnivorous. The original creation was like God describes... His restored creation is going to be in places like Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Without fear of being smitten. They will neither harm nor nor destroy, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the kind of environment God created. That's the kind of environment God will restore. But in the meantime now, animals eat each other. And sometimes animals come after us. After the flood, animals were eating animals and sometimes attempting to uh, eat humans, excuse me, after the fall. Now how did they go from being... Herbivorous, that is plant and insect eating, to being carnivorous. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but one creation scientist says that God programmed creatures with the information for attack and defense features even before they needed it. They did not need those attack and defense abilities until after the fall, and then after the fall, God switched on the genetic information for those features after the fall. It was already there in latent form and in their DNA. And the scientist gives us an explanation that I was going to read to you, but I'm not going to and bore you with. But there's information that gets switched on and off. And in effect, God switched that information on so that those attack and defense mechanisms now came to the fore for animals. Now, just a comment about those of you who think we should not eat animals. God has given, Genesis 9, we are just read that, God has given all things for us to, to eat. In Acts chapter 10 in your New Testament, God gave a vision to Peter and he showed him all animals of all sorts and he said, kill and eat. So the idea that it's wrong to eat animals is biblically wrong. And my theology professor in seminary pointed out, as I have here, That there will come a a time when animals don't eat, try to eat humans and humans don't eat animals and animals don't eat each other. And he said, so I'll stop eating animals when they stop eating each other. But until then, that's part of our diet. Because of sin, we all experience division. Now in your outline, secondly, because of sin, we all experience death. We all experience death. Death came because... Of sin, the Bible teaches. Romans 5, sin entered the world through one man, and notice death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Now it's important for you to understand, friends, that from a biblical standpoint, in the Bible's view of creation and God creating ex nihilo out of nothing, and God creating in six 24 hour days, as we discussed months ago, that being the case, There is no room for an evolutionary approach to the development of human life. Now, here's one of the reasons. The Bible tells us that death came into God's world through sin. Prior to the entrance of sin, there was not death. There was no animal death. There was no human death. But to have any sort of evolutionary scheme, you have to have death going on for millions of years before you finally get to man. You have fossils all over the place that supposedly are the results of this death that's been going on. Dating methods are used incorrectly. And so death only came as a result of sin. Death was not in God's world until the first man and the first woman were there. And then and only then were they under the sentence of death. So as a result of sin, we all experience death and and therefore we all experience all that leads to death. Disease, decay. We try to cover the process of death with cosmetics. We try to cover the product of death by not talking about it or making light of it. You know, at, at Halloween, we can make light of it. We can make light of the grim reaper. But death is a very serious issue for God. Death is an intruder. Death is not a part of God's original creation. We try to not think about death by putting cemeteries far away from our everyday routine. It used to be that the cemetery was right outside the church. And every Sunday when you came, you were reminded of your mortality. Now, one way to think about death accurately is this. Death is separation And there are three kinds of death in the Bible. Let me give those to you quickly. Death is separation, and there are three kinds of death. The first kind of death is physical death. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. And you see an example of this in the death of Jesus on the cross. The Bible says Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. When Jesus' spirit left his body, Jesus died. Physical death is not just the stopping of the heart or brain waves, it's the separation of the spirit from the body. That's physical death. Spiritual death is the second kind of death, and that's the separation of the individual from God. And every person since Adam and Eve now is separated from God. So when God said, in the day you eat of this fruit from the tree that I've told you not to eat from, you will surely die. Have any of you noticed that Adam lived physically many years after that? But in that day he died, in this sense, he was spiritually separated from God. And all of his children since have been spiritually separated from God. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins without hope and without God in the world. And then the third kind of death is eternal death. There's physical death, separation of the spirit from the body. There is spiritual death, the separation of the individual from God. And there's eternal death, which is the separation of the individual from God forever. And 2 Thessalonians 1 says this, Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's eternal death, eternal separation. Because of sin, we all experience division. We all experience death. And we all experience, finally, distortion. Distortion. What I mean by that is this. We now see everything, God, ourselves, others, and our circumstances through tainted lenses. God is no longer the Lord, the creator, the sovereign one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Now God is to be judged based on how we feel about him and whether or not God has lived up to our expectations. We even deign to be angry with God, but we can only entertain such a blasphemy because we have first thought of ourselves as God and we vie for his throne. With regard to ourselves, we've reaped the fruit of our sin, which held the promise according to verse 5 of chapter 3. The serpent said, you will be like God. If you will just express autonomy from Him. But now in our minds, we then are the captains of our own ship, the masters of our own fate. We are the centers of our universe. In the words of Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. And we've come into this world believing that lie. And if God plays any kind of a role in our lives, it's now as our waiter. To do as according to our beck and call. Even when we claim to worship Him. Hear this, it's more to praise him for what he gives rather than who he is. After sin, there is some prosperity gospel in all of us. And we now see others as means to our ends. Tools to be used rather than equals to be honored. Whether you're good for me depends on whether you do good for me. As defined by me. My tongue will now be used to manipulate and scheme and get what I want rather than to bless and build up and encourage. When we argue and when we fight and when we battle, it's always because we've lost the war for control of our hearts that are now ruled by our selfish desires. And with regard to our circumstances, we are now driven by them. And our moods and our joy or lack thereof is determined by whether my situations are what I think they should be. If not, I can always modify God's commands and lose that spouse that's not what I want. Or gossip about and slander those that are in my life who are not doing as they should as defined by me. Whether my boss or my former friend or my pastor. We now live in a way that nothing is as it's supposed to be. And we do not see things as they were made to be. And so we can, as sinners born into sin, all sinners can say with the poet and the poem Invictus, which is Latin for unconquerable. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate. You all recognize that line? Straight is the gate, says Jesus. But this poet says it matters not how straight the gate. How charged with punishments the scroll. You know what the scroll is? That's the word of God. It matters not how straight the gate or charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the distortion with which people come into the world because of sin. The sin of the first Adam is applied to everyone who comes into the world. But hear this. The righteousness of the one that the Bible calls the last Adam is applied to those who come to him with the empty hands of faith. Thanks be to God. I said at the beginning, as I said last week, Adam did what we would have done. But thanks be to God, Jesus did what we should have done. And thereby, we can be changed and we can be regenerated and we can be born again. And we can be have the penalty of sin paid for by Jesus and have the power of sin broken by Jesus and the presence of sin removed by Jesus in the future. So your take-home truth is this. Sin results in disorientation. The gospel results in reorientation. God is reorienting us and reorienting his world to what he made it to be. But that only comes through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pray and finish. But as we do, if you do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can do that. And friends, you must do that right now. Understand that in your way, in your own personal way, you are living for yourself if you're not living for the God who made you. And if you have not had a relationship with God established through Jesus Christ, then you have come into this world separated from him and you remain separated from him and you will be separated from him for the remainder of eternity if you do not receive the gift that Jesus Christ offers you of eternal life. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Realize that you are a sinner. Recognize Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way. I give myself to you. Receive Jesus Christ into your life by praying from your heart to God when we bow in a moment. Lord, I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me. I ask you to forgive me. And I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for instructing us in your word about what's wrong. Lord, what's wrong is me. What's wrong is us. It's certainly not you. You are altogether righteous and altogether holy. And yet it is we that have turned our face from you. And you in your love and your mercy and in your grace, you've sought us. Lord, you sought me when I was not seeking you. Your word tells us there is no one, no one who seeks God. So anyone who is found, those of us who have been hiding like our first father, Adam, we've been hiding. And when we are found, it is because you have sought us, not because we seek you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, then, for bringing us to this place to tell us in your word who we are. And, Lord, especially for those who have never come out of hiding, for you to call them out of hiding and to yourself through the Lord Jesus. Thank you for making the way, the only way that is possible for us to have a relationship with you. For our sin to be remedied and covered, atoned for. So that your holy justice is satisfied and so that we can be adopted into your family. Thank you, our Father. Help us, Lord, to hate sin. Help us, Lord, to see sin for what it is, cosmic treason against our holy God and our good creator. Help us, Lord, to be people who hate every vestige of sin in our own lives. And when we see it in your world, and when we see it in others, help us, Lord, to be motivated to mortify sin in our lives and to see it eradicated in the lives of those we love. Oh, Lord God, keep us from excuses. Help us to recognize all of the implications and applications and consequences of sin in our world and in our hearts and our families in our neighborhoods in our countries and in our churches. Oh, Jesus, restore us. Restore us as individuals and as a people. Restore your world so that it becomes what you made it to be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.